when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing Boris Johnson's decision to shut down Parliament for five weeks, whether it was unconstitutional, the reaction, and what it means for all those manoeuvres by MPs who want to stop the Prime Minister's Brexit plan. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, Whitehall editor, James Blitz, and chief political commentator, Robert Shrimsley. We're also delighted to welcome back Maddie Thurmond Jack from the Institute of Government Think Tank. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then don't forget to subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. The political week began quite quietly for Boris Johnson. His debut at the G Summit of World Leaders in Biritz went pretty well. He managed to walk the diplomatic tightrope between staying European and policy terms, but also Donald Trump's best British buddy. But on Wednesday morning, rumours began to swirl that the Privy Council, that's the body that advises Her Majesty the Queen on political matters, would meet and prorogue Parliament for five weeks, beginning from the second week of September until October the 14th. This happened and it was followed by outrage and accusations of a coup with Sue flying around from Johnson's enemies. So George Parker, let's just begin with what happened on Wednesday morning. We had a bit of an inclination this was coming because on Sunday there was some leaked legal advice on the front page of the Observer which said that Boris Johnson was looking at shutting down Parliament or proroguing, mm. to use the technical term, for five weeks. And now the denial from Downing Street when this story came out was obviously very carefully worded because it said we are not considering this, whereas in fact they were actually planning it. Indeed, that's right. Right. And the formal deed was done on the Wednesday morning. Um, Jacob Rees-Mogg led a small delegation of privy councillors to Balmoral to see the Queen. On a fly B flight. Yes, up to Aberdeen Airport on a cheap flight. I'm sure Jacob Rees-Mogg unfamiliar with that. And the Queen formally approved this, issuing an order in council from Balmoral Castle. But as you say, the news has started to leak out earlier than that. There was a hastily convened conference call of cabinet ministers at 10am as the news started to leak. And the moment this came out, all hell broke loose. The Speaker of the House of Commons, notably from a sun lounger in Turkey, issuing a statement saying the whole thing was a constitutional outrage. And that really set the tone of the reaction to follow. So, Maddie, could you just begin by explaining to us what exactly proroguing is and what normally happens with it and why people are so particularly outraged at the decision this time? So, proroguing Parliament is something that happens at the end of every session. So, this is a normal state of affairs. And then normally what you have is a break of about one or two weeks and then they start a new parliamentary session with a new Queen's speech which sets out the domestic agenda for that session. Now, this parliamentary session has already dragged on a lot longer than we'd normally expect. So, the government's line is that actually it's been too long. We're a new government. We want to end this session, start a new one and be able to do what we want to do. 
The reason people are very upset about this is because, firstly, this is a much longer break than you would normally expect. Normally, it's one to two weeks. This is nearly five weeks, potentially. Also, obviously, the timing of this is really, really crucial because we know that MPs are keen to express their view on Brexit and it does limit time available for them to do so. So the government's justification on the length of time has been about the fact that normally you'd expect MPs to have a three-week conference recess anyway. So actually, it's not that much longer than that. But crucially conference recess is something that MPs can vote on, whereas they can't vote on prorogation. So they could have stopped the conference recess if they wanted. And also certain sort of business as usual can continue. So committees can still meet, whereas with prorogation, they can't. Um, So that's why it's become particularly contentious this time round. Because Robert Shimsley, as Maddie was saying there, the point is that conference recess might not have actually happened because Parliament is still returning on Tuesday, September the 3rd, as expected. It's going to sit probably until the Monday or Tuesday the following week, we're not exactly sure. And then normally there would have been a business motion of the House of Commons, which MPs would have voted on. Everyone would have gone off to Brighton, Manchester, wherever it is for party conferences this year. But by doing the prorogation, it takes the decision out of MPs' hands about whether they wanted to have a conference recess because there was a lot of rumours that Labour and the Lib Dems and the SNP MP might have said, actually, we're in such a crisis over Brexit, we can't have conference recess. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And the other point about prorogation to factor in is that any legislation that is not complete automatically falls But when Parliament is prorogued. So actually, if the opponents of Boris Johnson had managed to get some legislation working its way through Parliament, if they hadn't completed all of its stages, that legislation would fall and they'd be back to square one. So that's another thing that works to the Johnsonian position. I think the truth is, when you look at this, that a constitutional outrage is now something that the other side commits. Both sides feel aggrieved by different things that have been done. This is a significant ratcheting up of the constitutional outrages. But at the bottom of all of this, I think there's one fact that people need to remember at the very, very root of all of this, which is this is a government with no majority. The reason we're in all of these positions, the reason everything that's happened over Brexit has happened is because this government has no majority, but is trying to behave as if it's got a Thatcherite or Blairite majority. It is trying to ram through incredibly contentious legislation without the numbers. And everything that is happening boils down to that fact. And they can say we have a mandate to deliver Brexit. It is true that the 2017 election delivered an overwhelming mandate to parties which said they would deliver Brexit. Something like 83% of the vote went to the Conservatives and Labour Party. But crucially, they did not deliver a sole mandate to any one party. Yet this government has tried to behave as if it has one. And that is at the root of everything that's going on. Now, the government's position, George, was to say, as Maddie was saying, it's all about domestic legislation. Boris Johnson has got his bold new agenda on the NHS and education and crime. And he needs to put all these bills through. And the spin from number 10 is very much that it's only four extra days on what would have happened if conference recess had gone ahead. But that was slightly scuppered by a hot mic moment by (laughs) Ben Wallace, the defence secretary. That's right. He basically gave the game away and said it was down to the fact, as Robert was saying, that the government doesn't have a majority and they want to squeeze the parliamentary timetable. That nobody really believes that it's essential for Boris Johnson to have a Queen's speech in the middle of the biggest domestic crisis we've seen since the war. We all know that the measures in the Queen's speech are essentially just manifesto commitments because given the majority of one in the House of Commons, there's very little chance any of this will get through. So it's obvious what Boris Johnson's doing. It's certainly politically outrageous. But the constitution has been flexed all the time. It's not just by Boris Johnson and the government. It's also by the Speaker of the House of Commons, John Burker, who's used maximum flex in the constitution to allow parliamentary opponents of a no-deal exit to have their say in the House of Commons as well. 
So, Maddie, a lot of people, as we've said, said this is a constitutional outrage and there's actually been a legal case that was very briefly held in Scotland on Friday morning, which put a temporary ruling to throw this thing out here. But it's not really breaking the constitution here. You know, it's a bold political move, as both George and Robert have said, but it's entirely within the executive's powers to do this. Whether it's the right thing to do or not is a very different question. I think that's right. It's treading a very fine line. I think, as Robert said, like a sort of a marker of what the government might be prepared to do. I mean, this is why, for example, the Queen was never going to refuse what the government recommended her to do, because technically it is within the government's power and they aren't stopping MPs sitting entirely this autumn. There will be some opportunities left to MPs. But of course, the fact that they know MPs want to express a view on Brexit, want to try and have a say, and they are purposely limiting those opportunities. I mean, it clearly is a political outrage at this point. Um, I do think the word outrage is very convenient because it's completely imprecise. As Maddie says, clearly they are within their rights in doing this. But what has been striking about the way this battle has been fought in Parliament is that neither side has been prepared to do the one thing which each of them could do to force the case when the government is blocked from pursuing its fundamental policy. There are two normal positions you can go to. One is to have a vote of no confidence and bring down the government. But the Tory rebels are not willing to do that. And the other is for the government to say, you are stopping our legislation. We are going to activate the mechanism to call an election. And the government doesn't want to do that, which instantly is a curious thing to do. If you believe you're embodying the will of the people, you would not be frightened of them. So I think the reason we're here is because neither side is doing what the conventions expect you to do in these circumstances. Mm. Politically, George, what do you make of the move of Boris Johnson to do this? Because obviously we knew we were going to head to this big parliamentary battle, which is going to start next week, about how MPs will try and stop his plan to potentially take us out of the EU without a deal. But by doing this in such a confrontational way, it's almost as if Downing Street wants to have this fight. And the briefings you've been getting from Number 10 about Dominic Grieve, Dominic Grieve and Philip Hammond have become these bête noires for... <laughs> Boris Johnson in a way. So whereas Theresa May was trying to shy away from fight, Boris Johnson is going headfirst into them. Yeah, by squeezing the parliamentary timetable, there was a very clear sense that Downing Street was trying to bring things to a head next week and almost daring the critics to move the vote of no confidence Robert was just uh, referring to, knowing full well they don't want to do that because they fear they haven't quite got the numbers at the moment. And Dominic Cummings, Boris Johnson's chief advisor, is a firm student of Sun Tzu and the art of war. He believes in disorientating your opponents by constantly changing your position, bluffs and feints. And I think that was successful to the extent that they actually managed to throw their opponents off guard. So plainly, he's trying to force a confrontation, which he thinks his opponents will shy away from. I think that's probably correct. But there still is, as Maddie was saying, towards the end of October, still a chance for MPs to have their say when we come back after the Queen's speech. It should be pointed out that there was another alternative prorogation scenario, which some people discussed, which was the possibility of Boris Johnson closing down Parliament for a week or two immediately before the October the 31st deadline. So Parliament wasn't able to sit as we went over the edge. And that's interesting, Robert, because there were several people in Boris Johnson's cabinet who, during the Tory leadership contest, made it very clear they could not go ahead with a prorogation over the Brexit period. One of those is Matt Hancock, the Health Secretary, and Amber Rudd, the Work and Pension Secretary. And they've sort of been dancing on the head of a pin here by saying that, in fact, we've only got a problem with prorogation in that period, but we're fine with prorogation in this. Do you think that's fair or do you think there is a clear difference? I think there is a difference. I don't know how fair it is. <laughs> Boris Johnson has been quite subtle in the respect that they're not proroguing during the Brexit date itself. So there are two weeks before Brexit where Parliament is sitting. I'm a little more sceptical of the cult of the genius of Dominic Cummings. I think we'll see whether he's a genius on November the 1st. We've got time to see how this works out. But they're certainly playing it confidently. And, and I think George is completely right. The one thing is they're not afraid of a people versus Parliament election if they have to have it. Are those Tory centrists 
in a bit of a hole on this? Yes, I think they are. But the truth is, those people who went into Boris Johnson's cabinet did so knowing what they were doing. They nailed their colours to his mask, which was, we're going to support all the things you do in between now and October 31st, which seem outrageous, on the basis that it might be what's necessary to get the deal. And the real truth is that we have to slightly suspend final judgment on what Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings are doing until we know whether it's worked. If they get a changes to the withdrawal agreement, then everything they've done now will appear to have been justified. If they fail, then what they've done is curtailed Parliament for no purpose other than to drive through something that Parliament won't support. Because you can make the case that, in fact, this prorogation is to create a landing zone for a deal. And this was the line from Mr Johnson when he said it's very crucial that Parliament is sitting around the EU Council on the 17th of October, which is when, if there's going to be any kind of tweaks to the Brexit deal, they will land. And the thinking of Mr Cummings and people in Downing Street is that you've got to keep no deal on the table and Parliament might well be about to take no deal off the table. So by proroguing it for five weeks, you now are the chances of that. You show the EU once again, we are serious about leaving without a deal. And then we come back and then you'd have a breakneck speed to get a Brexit deal through, which, Maddie, brings me two quick questions for you is, number one, can MPs do anything now about this? Now that the Queen has signed the prorogation order, are there any mechanisms when they come back to go against that? And second of all, if we do come back, you know, after that EU Council on the 17th of October and there is a new Brexit deal, is it even possible to get that through the Commons by October the 31st? On the first point, legislation is the best opportunity for MPs. So they could legislate to say that they will not be prorogued until a certain date, or they could even include in their no deal legislation something around having certain dates that they need to be brought back to Parliament. So we can see whether they'll do either of those things next week. On the second point, Johnson said the Queen's speech votes will be the 21st, 22nd of October. You've then got six sitting days to get legislation through Parliament. In theory, you can do it, but it means that essentially you're offering Parliament a choice, either no deal or this deal. So you might be able to ram it through, but there's not going to be much scrutiny. And I don't think MPs or peers are going to be very happy about that. This is actually a crucial point, by the way, because one of the things we're hearing noises from some of the most hardline Brexiters, that they wouldn't support any deal at all. So even if he managed to get the entire backstop struck out, they would still oppose the remaining parts of the deal. So the fact is that he could end up having to rely on people who have been opposing him at the moment to get any deal through were he to get it and confront them in a way that Theresa May wasn't able to do and say, look, it's this, it's my deal or we're out. Well, this is the point that to get that deal through, it's always been the case, and we've talked about it on this podcast before, that if you have three outcomes, i.e. the Brexit deal, no deal and no Brexit, you've got to narrow it to two. And Theresa May made us think she was narrowing it to two with no deal is better than a bad deal. That turned out not to be true. And then she went back to the three options of my deal or no Brexit. And obviously, they are trying to really narrow this thing down. So if it comes to the point you described, Robert, they hope that those Labour MPs and other people who want to avoid no deal will back the deal. I think the one thing... Boris Johnson has got right in his thinking on this is by saying this deadline is immovable and everyone believes him. Mm. So he is putting the real pressure of time on everybody. And finally, George, there was one other piece of big political news this week, which was unrelated, we are told, but was the resignation of Ruth Davidson mm. as the Scottish Conservative Party leader. She's led the Tories north of the border since 2011 and was a leading light for moderate conservatism and also unionism, you know, talking about the whole UK and saw an extraordinary revival of the party north the border. She was a, played a big role in the 2014 independence referendum. She made the party the official opposition in Holyrood and, most strikingly of all, 13 Scottish Tory MPs in 2017. And she resigned the day after this prorogation business. Now, she very much insists it was about family and about her own personal future, but 
very hard to not see this as a reflection of what's going on in Westminster. Well, the timing was certainly inconvenient, wasn't it, for Boris Johnson? It actually emerged on the day that uh, he was proroguing Parliament. But for the reasons you set out, it's a serious setback to Boris Johnson. She was the most articulate advocate for the union. She brought the Tory party back from the political grave in Scotland and delivered, as you say, vital 13 seats at Westminster. And she was the most powerful advocate of a modern one nation conservatism. The fact she's leaving is a serious setback for Boris Johnson. She said that Brexit and her differences with Boris Johnson on Brexit were a factor. I think the only relief they'll draw on this in number 10 was the fact she didn't use her resignation speech to go out in a blaze of glory. And she did make the point that whilst a few years ago, the idea of fighting a general election, then the Holyrood election would have filled her with great enthusiasm. Now she sees the idea of two elections in two years as a matter of dread. And it was quite funny, Robert, that in her resignation speech, she had much more coded barbs at David Cameron for holding referendums in the first place. And said it was, And it was shying away from political leadership in reference to the 2014 independence one and obviously 2016 on the Brexit. That's exactly right. And we know how exasperated she was both by the referendum and by the result. But she's also exasperated by the fault of a second referendum because she knows that immediately gives ammunition to the Scottish National Party. I think the correct way to look at what she did is to accept at face value her points about the family commitments and being a new mother. But the point is, it's that much harder to drag yourself away from the family if you can't get enthused about the political project you're meant to be fighting for. And I think that's the key point. With Parliament now due to sit for just half a dozen days or so before it is prorogued, the pressure has been ramped up on those MPs opposed to Mr Johnson's Brexit strategy to make their move. On Tuesday, Jeremy Corbyn announced that Labour would support legislation to force the Prime Minister into another Article 50 extension. And that is still the plan. But will it now work with that very tight time frame? Are we instead heading towards a no-confidence vote and a potential general election? So, George, before the prorogation began on Wednesday, we had this cross-party meeting on Tuesday. It was convened by Jeremy Corbyn, mm. included the leaders of the Liberal Democrats, the Green Party, the SNP, and all the sort of waifs and strays of the backbenches. And they all agreed the plan was to get together and to take control of the Commons like Yvette Cooper and Nick Bowes and Hilary Benn did earlier in the year and do that once again. And that still seems to be their plan. Yeah, they had two options. One was to try and stop no deal through a legislative route, which is what they've decided to do. The other one was to try and have a vote of no confidence in Boris Johnson in the next week. But as we've discussed, that was deemed to be not the right time. And I think lots of Conservative MPs take the view that it's the wrong time and they'll hold back the possibility of voting no confidence until later in the month if all else fails. And what it means, as you say, is the idea is that they'll apply to the Speaker to take control of the Commons order paper. We assume that John Burko, given the frame of mind he's in at the moment, will be happy to oblige with that. They will then move legislation, which would require Boris Johnson to come back to Parliament before pushing ahead with a no-deal exit with the assumption that Parliament would block it. And that's what they're going to do. It's going to be a very tight timetable. They've got a matter of days to do it. There's all sorts of talk about sitting through the weekend, having camp beds erected in the House of Lords, where, of course, there's no guillotine. That means that Eurosceptic peers in the House of Lords can talk this measure out. So it's going to be very tight. So, Maddie, let's talk through how this thing might work, because it's incredibly complicated. So the first thing is on Tuesday, when MPs return from their summer breaks, although I don't think many of them have had that much of a break. And it is very likely that the Labour Party and these cross-benchers will apply to the Speaker for an emergency debate Understanding Order 24. What happens then? Yep. Yeah, so they're going to apply for an emergency debate. So normally an emergency debate is on something 
something saying that the House has considered an issue and it doesn't sort of take a decision on anything. What MPs will be doing is they'll be tabling a substantive motion that will take control of the order paper the following day. So for the Speaker to allow this, it's going to be quite a break with parliamentary convention, but we expect that he would allow this. So that firstly, they'll need to pass that. The second step will be they will make a business motion setting out how they can pass the bill in one day in the Commons, be the first order of business the next day. So on the Wednesday, they have to pass a business motion saying that they're going to do all these stages. And then that is on the Wednesday. And that will be on the Wednesday. So that will be the first order of business on the Wednesday. Then they'll go through the stages of the bill. So MPs could vote down the bill at either second or third reading. So they've got to survive at this point sort of four key votes, but also there might be amendments they've got to see off from the government, from Brexiteer MPs, we don't know. And then once they've done that, it will go to the Lords on the Thursday, where, as George said, they can't timetable it in the same way. So Brexiteer peers might try and filibuster it. And that's where there's this discussion about whether peers will end up sitting through the weekend to try and get it all done before Parliament is prorogued so that they don't lose the bill and have to start all over again when Parliament returns in October. James Blitz, what do we think is going to be in this bill? Because the plotters, the planners, whatever you want to call them, have been quite tight-lipped about this, not least because they don't want Downing Street and Mr Cummings to know what's going on there. But if we look back to the Cooper Bowes bill earlier in the year, that essentially said to Theresa May, under the terms of Article 50, you have to go off and request an extension. And I think they're very concerned this time that Mr Johnson won't play by the rules. And in fact, if they don't write this bill very carefully and absolutely bind his hands every stage of the way, he will find a way of getting round it and not extending Brexit. Yes, I think it is very difficult to bind Boris Johnson's hands around this. If you look, for example, at a situation in which a bill has been passed, which mandates the Prime Minister to go and get an extension to Article 50 if he fails to get a deal, well, Boris Johnson can then, in that period between 17th of October and the 31st of October, turn around to the EU and say, OK, I've been mandated to get an extension, but in that extension period, I'm going to be really horrible to the EU. I'm going to absent myself from all the major decisions, try and obstruct as much as I possibly can. If he were to do that, it doesn't matter what Parliament has mandated in a bill, the EU is never going to give him that extension. So in fact, the leeway for the Prime Minister is very considerable. Now, as you say, we don't actually know how they're going to carve this particular instrument. I mean, I think they have to get a balancing act right. On the one hand, they need to say, look, if you can't get a deal done at the October Council on 17th of October, then automatically we will go to some form of an extension. But they need to try and create a situation in which they don't completely look like they're taking the ground from underneath Johnson's feet. He is making a reasonable argument that this does take away some of his negotiating power. So if they can somehow defer the point of decision, the real point of this decision until after the 17th of October in the way they frame the bill, that might be helpful. I think that's a very interesting point because, George, one thing I've picked up from Tory MPs this week is that they do want to give Boris Johnson a chance to get a deal because, as ever, the Remainer tribe in Parliament is very split. People who want a second referendum. There's those who want to just revoke Article 50 and stop the whole thing. But the biggest group are those who want to stop no deal. And this is particularly the Gawkward squad of former Theresa May era ministers. They still want to give Boris Johnson the 30 days, however long it is, to try and get a Brexit deal. And so to what James is saying, they're not going to necessarily vote for a bill that immediately asks him to request an extension to Article 50 because they know that will pull the rug from under his feet. Yeah, that's right. And Boris Johnson, in his letter to Tory MPs, when he explained his whole strategy this autumn and the prorogation, said people in Europe are watching what you do. 
and don't tie my hands, to use John Major's old expression. So you're right. I think his hope is that there are enough... We're talking here about between about 20 and 40 pro-European Conservatives who might be prepared to vote with Labour on this particular bit of legislation. And Boris Johnson's real hope is he can persuade some of those people to back off and to give him more time. And one of the interesting things we saw this week was Boris Johnson announcing he was going to step up the tempo of negotiations in Brussels. His twice chief, a week. Chief negotiator, Dave Frost, will be over there twice a week talking to EU partners, all to give the impression that he's still serious about getting a deal, which is also the message that Mr Frost is conveying to his European counterparts. What do you think, Maddie, is the most likely form of the bill that's going to emerge on Wednesday? Well, as you say, we don't really know at this stage. But again, the challenge is really getting enough people to support a bill at this point. And really, you've got to go for quite a lowest common denominator in the way I'd phrase it. So earlier this year, the Cooper Act basically said you have to go and ask for an extension if there isn't a deal agreed by this certain point. And I think that probably something similar will be said. What will be interesting is what they do if the EU suggests an alternative date, for example, to the one that he might suggest and how they can try and actually legislate to force him to agree an extension, not just ask for it. So I think we'll probably see them try to do something around that because ultimately Theresa May was a much more malleable prime minister. And actually, by the time they passed the bill earlier this year, she'd already asked for an extension anyway. So it was really a bit of a belt and braces approach rather than a necessity. So I think they'll probably give him some time to try and get a deal. And then essentially the terms of the act will then kick in. So James, one thing I heard sort of on the tracks from the European diplomatic side is there was talk of preempting this with an extension saying, look, if you want to have an election to try and resolve this thing, particularly if Mr Johnson goes and threatens to be a troublemaker within the EU, the end of this year or February feel like realistic options for an extension because once you hit March next year, you're into the next fiscal framework for the EU. And by that point, if the UK is not gone, you then get into budget rounds and very complicated things as well. But obviously the EU doesn't want to get involved in domestic politics. And one of the messages Mr Johnson put across to other EU leaders at the weekend at the G7 was don't listen to Parliament. Focus on me and what I'm saying because we will get around Parliament. Ultimately, do you think Parliament will be able to bind Boris's hands on this? I don't know. As I think we've said, one of the extraordinary things is at the end of the week we've had, it's still not clear whether the opposition and the rebels can get a bill through the Commons. I think the Lords, from the peers I've spoken to, don't think there's going to be much of a problem there. There's just too much of a majority. There's a clear pro-EU majority there. Conservative peers I've spoken to today are rather downbeat about... They're not planning to talk it out. They think it's too difficult, given the majority, the overwhelming Mm. anti-government majority there is in the Lords. The Commons is much more difficult for the reasons George has said, which is that there's a lot of Tory MPs who do want to give Johnson a chance. And I think it's a fascinating thing at the end of this week. One does ask oneself, tactically, what has Johnson actually achieved through the whole prorogation thing? If I can come back to that one more time, because at the beginning of this week, he was in a superb position. He made an opening with France and Germany on negotiation, had a very good G7. He was getting a domestic legislative programme up in lights, spending a review on Wednesday. And at the end of it, he's in a situation where he's much more likely to lose this contest against the rebels than would have been the case if he just not had this extensive prorogation, but just played by the rules. I don't think he really had to do this. The fact he's had the prorogation does make it more likely that he will lose. Hmm. So, George, obviously next week is going to be pretty explosive. We remember those weeks in March where the Cooper-Bowes bill went through. I think this is going to be even more gripping to watch for people who love this sort of thing. But it does come back to the question that our colleague Robert has written about a lot before, which is you can pass as many bills as you want. It is very difficult to bind the government's hands, and there's so many ways that they could get around that. And it comes back 
back to this question, ultimately, if you want to stop Boris's Brexit plans, you have to stop Boris, and that means a no-confidence vote. But the rebels, you know, they had their plan before prorogation, which was to do legislation first. They are still sticking with legislation first and saying no to a no-confidence vote. Yeah, that's right. I think, you know, at the end of the day, it will come down to, is Parliament prepared to stop him if he proceeds with a no-deal? I still think Boris Johnson wants to get a deal and everything he's done, it seems to me, is consistent with someone who actually genuinely wants a deal. I think he would much rather have a general election off the back of an orderly Brexit than a completely chaotic Brexit. He's given Parliament enough time to approve a deal. He's narrowed down his list of demands in Brussels to just the backstop. I agree that's a big ask, but it's still one issue that they have to resolve. And his overriding priority is to arrive in Brussels on the 17th of October without having his hands tied in advance, with no deal, still a realistic prospect, and to put pressure on everyone to actually finally resolve this. That's all consistent. I agree with James. The fact he's gone for this prorogation, he's raised the political temperature, he's inflamed passions. The whole debate, as you say, said, will be taking place not just against a febrile atmosphere in Westminster, but against the backdrop of nationwide protests, Labour supporters talking about occupying bridges and public squares. It's going to be a week of high drama. So, Maddie, let's say we have this bill. It does somehow get passed. Of all the things, the challenges you outlined earlier, the government, the, the rebels get round them, in fact, and Parliament is prorogued. That bill is passed and Mr Johnson is forced to do something. That doesn't go anywhere and we come to the no confidence vote. Can you just run us through what would then happen? And the key point is the numbers still aren't there for a confidence vote, really, because you need about eight Conservatives, give or take, to get that over the line. And they're still not willing. I count there's about four on the record who have said they would vote to bring down their own government. Take us through the steps then. Yeah, so if MPs do successfully pass a no-confidence vote in Johnson, as you say, that's still not clear, although the closer we get to 31st of October and a possible no-deal, I think the higher the chances they are successful, then under the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act, the 14-day period is triggered where someone else can try and form an alternative government to win a vote of confidence within those 14 days to be able to form a government. And if no one can do that, then we do have an election at the end of those 14 days. The challenges are, the closer you get to 31st of October, the higher the chance you're going to bring down the government, the less time you have to potentially form an alternative government to then ask for an extension to Article 50 to then ensure we don't leave without a deal on the 31st. So if you're getting up to the 28th, 29th of October, pressure is on MPs to actually reach an agreement about who would lead that alternative government. Because otherwise, unless Johnson, sort of having lost the confidence vote, accepts the fact that MPs want an extension, it would be up to him still to go to Brussels and ask for an extension to avoid a no deal. And that's basically what we could see playing out if the legislation isn't successful or if Johnson ignores legislation. That's the scenario we might end up in right at the end of October. And it feels like that is going to happen in October. Like we could get a confidence vote next week, but it feels very much as if it's going to be legislation next week. We'll see if that passes. Parliament returns after the EU Council. And you have to think that if that EU Council, there's no new deal emerging and we are heading straight towards no deal, that's when we're going to be looking looking at a confidence vote. Yeah, I think that's most likely. And James, of course, one of the reasons the pro-EU MPs in Parliament are not backing that confidence vote is once again back to the argument who is going to lead this caretaker government. A lot of unhappiness about Jeremy Corbyn leading that. There's been talk that for Grandy, the father of the House, Ken Clark, or the mother of the House, Harriet Harman, from the Labour side could do it, but Labour won't do that. And we go to this sort of political bickering once again about what would happen. But I sort of think that if we get to the situation that Maddie was describing, where it is really too two minutes to midnight towards a no-deal Brexit, eventually everyone would probably fold in behind Mr Corbyn because those people don't want no-deal. And if it's to put him in as a temporary caretaker government or not, I think they would eventually fold. Yeah, I very much agree with that. I think at this particular moment... They won't. They won't. If Jeremy Corbyn 
were to turn around at this particular moment and say, actually, I accept the argument of the Lib Dems, we should have a caretaker government, we'll back that as part of a majority, but somebody else like Ken Clark or Harriet Harman should lead it, I think Boris Johnson would be in a lot of trouble because I think in that situation you could actually get a caretaker government that says put no deal off the table and we will then have an extended period where we could have either an election or another referendum. But he won't do that. But I think you're absolutely right. I agree very much with George. October the 17th European Council, I think Johnson wants a deal. As I said last week, I cannot imagine how he can genuinely predict or influence what will happen on no deal if it happens. It would be a disastrous period for his premiership, almost certainly. So I think he'll go for a deal. If he fails and he comes back, then I think your scenario is correct. The only, the final card that Parliament has, the Commons has, caretaker government, get behind Corbyn, limited period, insist that Corbyn's domestic legislation is not pushed through, but nonetheless get behind him to have an extension. That, I think, is the scenario. But I think in the end... Johnson will go for a deal. And then finally, Maddie, the course, the problem of all this is that because of the delightful way the Fixed Term Parliament Act is written, if the government is brought down and if that caretaker government doesn't happen, then we have an election. And who sets the time of that? It's Downing Street. And of course, Downing Street have made it abundantly clear they will not have an election before Brexit Day. So you could end up having a no deal Brexit and then an election, which would obviously be complete chaos. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what can end up happening. And the real challenge for that scenario is actually what civil servants can do during that period, because sort of per the rules, head of a general election limits political activity and political decision making. If we are in a no deal scenario where they're needing to put out communications to businesses and individuals, there'll be severe limits on what they can do. And also you might end up needing to have daily COBRA meetings with ministers, civil servants. So during that period, that will be quite a big concern. I'm sure there'll be some very strong guidance from the cabinet secretary to the prime minister to say that actually this should not happen. And finally, very briefly, because I know how much you all love a prediction, I'm going to ask you all, by the time we're recording this podcast in two weeks' time, where are we going to be, James? I think Parliament will legislate to tie Johnson's hands. I think he'll have to live with it. He'll keep on going for a deal. October 17th, I predict he will somehow come back with a deal. Maddie. I think I'd probably agree with that. I think MPs and peers will successfully legislate next week. But yes, Johnson will continue to negotiate. I'm not as convinced there'll necessarily be a deal at the European Council. And George? Well, I hate to be consensual, but I think probably, yes, the Parliament will tie Boris Johnson's hands. He'll spend the next two weeks wriggling to untie his hands and to prove his hands aren't really tied at all. And then we'll see what happens to the European Council. It's a big ask, but I still think a deal's possible. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to George, Robert, James and Maddie for joining us. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard and would like to see some more FT journalism, then you can find our latest subscription offers at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Salome Palladze. Until next time, thanks for listening. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. 
Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.